We are this afternoon blessed with a good number who have come our way tonight. We're certainly appreciative of our regular membership that health and other matters are well with us that are permit us to gather this evening. And certainly also visitors who have come our way and for that we're appreciative and also very thankful. Certainly at the outset of the lesson tonight, much as this morning, it would be entirely in order for me to express appreciation. While I was away for last Sunday evening, Brother Trail delivered the Sunday night lesson and did a, no doubt an outstanding job at that, and we're very blessed here at Pippin to have gentlemen, young men like he and the others who so capably and ably can fill the pulpit, teach Bible classes, direct singing, whatever it is that they may be called upon and asked to do. We are indeed blessed at Pippin greatly. As perhaps you're aware of other congregations in which there's somewhat of a dearth of individuals, men who perhaps are present and willing to do that. And yet here, under the tutelage of our eldership, we, we again are very blessed with young men to fill in in any way that they might be needed. In our studies on Sunday evening, we have been looking into the book of Hebrews into the New Testament, and we'll continue that study this evening, particularly looking at a lesson that continues some of the thoughts that two weeks ago we noted concerning the priesthood of Jesus. We looked then at chapters 5 and somewhat of chapter 7. Tonight we will look more into chapter 7 as well as some of the thoughts in chapter 8. It's easy to appreciate it on reading the book that the author emphasizes greatly the priesthood of the Christ, lifting high and contrasting Christ's priesthood with that with which they were familiar. Because without question, that was an exceedingly strong argument, and it was a very vital point in significance with respect to what the Lord offers. In order to begin our lesson tonight, as we have often made note just to highlight some of the things we have seen, I hope that by now we each perhaps have embedded in our mind the words superior or better, whichever the case for you and your familiarity may be. Because in so many instances we have seen the emphasis on Christ's superiority compared to anything that the Old Testament had to offer. Superior to the prophets, superior to Moses, superior to the angels, superior to Joshua, superior to the Levitical priesthood, and yet, as one looks at all of that, we're only halfway through the book. We have so many more things to see as we investigate together the grandeur of the majesty of the gospel and Jesus Christ, the great leader of it all. Tonight, as you can see on that screen, we're going to look there at the bottom at some of the more interesting matters related to the priesthood. So I hope that you still have that passage in Hebrews 8 marked. We will look at that as the appropriate time when the lesson arrives. As we move our way toward it, I'd like to share some thoughts from this chapter, chapter 7 that is, also based on some of what one could see from the Old Testament. We just hinted a moment ago about the emphasis placed in this book on the priesthood. Chapters 5, part of chapter 6, part of chapter 7, and, all, and also somewhat of chapter 8. It's easy to see, I would think, from our knowledge of the Old Testament the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in particular, the great respect that the Jewish individual would have had for a priest and for the office of the priesthood. One might inquire, why was it that way? What was that office, and why would a Hebrew or Israelite male especially consider a great honor and respectfulness with regard to that priesthood? The opening comment on that slide will lead us to see in a moment one of the thoughts shared by the Hebrew writer 
But for a moment, let's give some thought in an overview way of what we recall from the Old Testament. The priest stood in that particular office in which he was the thoroughfare or the go-between between that individual and God. The individuals would often bring their sacrifices to the temple or the tabernacle, whichever was the appropriate time in history, and then the priest would be the one who would take that particular offering, proceed to offer in the proper way, and thus bring that person's mechanisms or characteristics, be it expiation, be it the character of offering for the wave offering, be it a burn offering, a peace offering, a trespass offering, the priest would thus offer it on the person's behalf to God. And thus the priest served as that type of go-between individual to which an individual would go. And thus if a person had a love for the Lord, a desire to be pleasing to God, that priest served in a very dramatic and vital role in accomplishing that end. However, that by the same token leads us to notice what some of the problems were later in Old Testament history. In Jeremiah 5.31, for example, on that occasion, God through Jeremiah said, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And thus, the priests could thus be led into error. It was possible for them, in fact, to do things that were not proper and right, even Eli's sons were given to that behavior, were they not, in 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4? However, that doesn't set aside the office of the priest itself. As we give some thought then to the priesthood, how does the Hebrew writer present it so that you and I can appreciate what we have through Jesus and what was not available in its greatness through the Old Testament era? Some of these thoughts, perhaps. Verse 11 of Hebrews 7. There, a rather interesting point is made. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? There is a fundamentally important point. These individuals to whom the Hebrew book was written Remember, they were laboring under the position of desiring or at least questioning. Should we forsake the gospel, turn back to the law of Moses, because beneath that we had no persecution? We were able to do that which we desired, to follow what we thought was the way of God, but we never were under a position of being so persecuted by these about us. Notice what the author said. If perfection had come by that Levitical priesthood, there would never have been a reason to offer another priest. All the priests from that point onward would have followed in the channel of Judaism, following the very nature of the, of the, the Levitical priesthood, and there would have been no need for any other. But yet, in the very heart of the Old Testament, God himself prophesied that there is coming another priest, and he is not after the, Levit the Levitical order. He is not after the order of Aaron. He is after the order of Melchizedek. That's found in Psalm 110, verse 4. Thus, because of the fact that there in that very era beneath which the Levitical priesthood was in vogue, God therein made a prophecy that that one will be superseded. Another priest after Melchizedek's order will arise. That highlights the fact there were imperfections in that priesthood, the Levitical one. 
I'd like for us to devote the next few moments to asking what was wrong with it. What were those imperfections to which the Hebrew writer alluded? And by the way, what about in those imperfections that we consider how Christ fixed it? What then are the perfections we find in the Christian, in the high priesthood of Jesus? The first one I thought we should turn our attention to is in verse 16 of Hebrews 7. It says in that passage, Who is made, not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life? Here the Hebrew writer says before us a rather interesting contrast. On the one hand, he speaks of this priesthood that follows a carnal commandment. But on the other hand, as if that particular shortcoming were not present, he speaks about one that follows an endless life. It is not difficult to see, is it, the thrust and argument that the writer is making. Those priests who serve in the Old Testament, those of the Levitical order, notice they were following the message the issue concerning a carnal commandment. What kind of carnal commandment might be the one to which the writer refers? Perhaps verse 8 is part of the answer. In Hebrews 7 verse 8 it reads, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. Those men, those high priests and priests to whom we referred a moment ago, as individuals would bring their sacrifices and offerings, and if when the time came from Exodus 30 verse 10, they would pay their tithes, those were specifically offered to or paid through a man who himself was subject to the matter of death. He wasn't going to live perpetually. He wasn't going to live on and on in that flesh. He served thus beneath this carnal commandment relative to death and that carnal commandment given through the very nature of, remember, God through Moses on Mount Sinai. And even Moses himself ultimately died, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And thus that carnal commandment reminds us of the fleshly existence that encumbered the way of those priests. In fact, as one gives thought to that, Notice how it's contrasted in verse 16 to the power of an endless life. Jesus Christ, our high priest. Notice, he has never been superseded. He will never, in fact, give up that priesthood to another. He will never thus come to the point of death to which he must resign it to, a, to yet another person. The power of an endless life. It's no wonder later in this chapter, verse 23 says, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. We each know that. Hebrews 9.27 teaches us, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And that sentence was just as surely for the regular person of Israel as it was for the priest. That man was going to die. And the priesthood would thus need to be transferred to another. However, you and I serve today a high priest that shall never abdicate the throne, never give up the office, for he serves with the power of an endless life. And in such a fashion and way, we never have to worry about the transfer of it to another. Isn't it interesting that when we consider politics and the things associated with it, whenever the president gives up his office, when his term is completed and another person takes the office, there are a myriad of... New perspectives that the people appreciate 
Some try to take advantage of it. Others simply try to ride the tide. However, there is not so with the high priesthood of Jesus. It's permanent. And how thankful we should be for that unchangeable priesthood. For note the language of verse 24. But this man, and that refers to Jesus, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And that thought is so refreshing, isn't it? In the constant change of humanity, in all that goes on about us in our society, this becomes that. What once was forbidden is now accepted. The priesthood of Christ is unchangeable. And it continues ever under the jurisdiction of the high priest who does not abdicate and who will continue onward in that office. That's one of the first things we can see about the imperfections of that Levitical order. But what might be another? You'll notice also on this slide, we can see in Hebrews 7, verse number 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. That law that was in fact the binding force of that Levitical order, that was prescribed in that law of Moses. And that law, you'll notice, was described in this verse as having both weakness and unprofitableness. And in the Roman letter on Wednesday evening, we've been discussing, particularly in chapter 7, in which Paul lifted high what the design of that Old Testament was. Its design was to, in fact, check sin until the Savior should come. But you'll notice that in it, it was a law that had weakness. It could not accomplish the very thing that men most needed. Notice it did not offer justification, Acts 13.38. It did not cleanse the conscience, Hebrews 10.1. It couldn't forgive sins ultimately, Hebrews 10.4. And so the thing man needed most, it could not offer. Thus it was weak. You'll also note the inspired writer says that in ways it was unprofitable. In the sense of giving various and sundry commandments, the design of which was to lead to a greater sense of godliness, it fell, however, in the capability of producing the very thing most desired. Thus, unprofitableness and weakness. And in that light, might we now ask, what about the law beneath which we serve? And the one through our great high priest Christ today, is it also one which labors beneath both weakness and unprofitableness? Of course, that answer is no. This law that you and I have now have the law of Christ. It is spoken of as a perfect law, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. And it is significant how the word perfect is employed. Perfect, that stands greatly different than weak and unprofitable, doesn't it? It's no wonder that you and I have the perfect law of liberty. James 1 verse 25. It's no wonder this law being described as now perfect is that law of Christ to which Paul referred in 1 Corinthians 9 21. It is that law that he said was able to convict sinners no matter their state and lead them to a right relationship with the Heavenly Father. Again, thanks be unto God for the greatness of his provision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatness of that gospel seen in the ways that we've seen different than the Old Testament law. But one might ask, what else should be asserted? So far we've noted some rather monumental differences, imperfections of that old law. There are more that are mentioned. Might we appreciate Hebrews 7 verse 20? 
It says there, that, and inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Another grand distinction. Beneath the Old Testament, once God gave that original prescription of Aaron as the initial high priest, the successors then came as again his, his oldest descendant. But now, you'll notice that took place rather naturally upon the person's death. But that's very different from what he said of Christ. You'll notice again in verse 21, quoting from the 110th Psalm, verse 4, God swore by an oath with respect to Christ's priesthood that he did not do with respect to the successors of the Aaronic one. Note the difference. Here was an oath. God swore with an oath and thus affirmed all the character of his being. And he cannot lie, Titus 1, verse 2. And thus this high priesthood of the Christ is founded upon the sure and certain promise and solemn at that oath of the God of heaven. That type oath binds you and I to a recognition of the greatness of his providential desire to accomplish through the Christ what the imperfections of the Old Testament did not permit. We ought never lose sight then of the thankfulness we should have for the gospel of Jesus. For all that was lacking in the Old Testament is fulfilled entirely in what you and I have access to. That wonder is highlighted by yet another observation. In addition to verse number 20, you'll notice in verse 26 of this chapter another feature that distinguishes the Levitical priesthood to that of Christ. It says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Perhaps as the author reaches that point, he, to be sure, will interestingly amplify that point more fully as we reach near the close of chapter 9. But at least for now, notice what he has mentioned. He has asserted in verse 26 that you and I enjoy, yes, enjoy, a high priest who is holy. Those high priests of the Old Testament, though they officiated in an office that was described as one of holiness, they themselves were not physically perfect. As humans, they were guilty of sin. And hence, they first had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, that's what Aaron had to do first. But yet, notice the, the distinction here. Our high priest is holy. He is harmless. Peter joins the chorus of that description in 1 Peter 2, doesn't he? When he said there was no guile found in his mouth. And that word harmless here literally in the Greek means guileless. Jesus, in fact, tabernacled in the flesh for roughly a third of a century and never ever committed a sin. Never separated himself from the Father by virtue of his failure to keep any aspect of the law beneath which he lived. Never committed an act of commission or omission, either one. And yet, we find the perfection of his priesthood highlighted as it's contrasted to the imperfection of the previous order. In addition, he says, undefiled and separate from sinners, but finally made higher than the heavens.
how lovely it is to think that this high priest of ours doesn't in fact tabernacle here, but he has already arrived at the place you and I long one day to be. He's already sitting at the right hand of God, reigning over his spiritual kingdom, and in the majesty of that location and place, he's already thus there and has blazing the trail so that you and I can follow in his steps and become at the same place. That is, after all, the goal of this period of our physical life, isn't it? This is a time of preparation, and the day of judgment will in fact lead us. It's our desire to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. Those thoughts challenge us to appreciate only more deeply that imperfection versus the perfection of this current order. You'll notice on the slide one final set of thoughts that distinguish so greatly. And this particular point was one so worthy that our author emphasized it more than once. In fact, you'll notice with me especially in Hebrews 7 verse 13 and then Hebrews 8 verse 4, the following points are made. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. If it's our desire to make note of what the words refer to, the particular phrase in verse 13, the word he, the antecedent of that pronoun is Jesus. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe. All of those priests of the Old Testament order were decreed by God to flow from which tribe? Which one of Jacob's sons? It had to be the tribe of Levi. And thus, the third of his sons, the tribe of Levi, was the one through whom, if it followed God's decree, all the priests would have to flow therefrom. But now he reaches a monumental point. As he lifts high the banner of Christ, Hebrews 8 verse 4 puts it in language like this, which Terry so aptly read a moment earlier. For if he were on earth, again, that he refers to Christ, he should not be a priest seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Because all the priests, by God's declaration, were to flow through Levi, we know, though, from the genealogy of the Christ, he did not descend through Levi. He descended through Judah. He descended through a different one of the sons, the fourth of Jacob's sons. And therefore, if he were on earth, he could not possibly serve as a high priest beneath the Old Testament order it would be a violation of and transgression of the will and law of God. And thus, verse 14 of chapter 7 puts it in these words, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And thus we now have it. Christ and his greatness is not of the Levitical order because he didn't even descend through Levi. He descended rather through Judah. God all along had in mind to supersede that Levitical priesthood with one after the order of Melchizedek. And this one, Jesus, through Judah, was the occupant of that office and continues so until this day. That particular point so strong would not have been missed by those knowledgeable of the Judaistic law. Again, Christ could not serve lawfully as a priest on earth. He didn't come from the right tribe. Thankfully, he, of course, is of the order of Melchizedek, who long preceded the character of Levi. 
Melchizedek's mentioned in Genesis 14. And he lived on this earth centuries before Levi was ever born. Those thoughts only challenge us. Perhaps with what will conclude our lesson this evening with the next set of thoughts, both from chapter 7 again and from chapter 8 with a different perspective. We've looked so far at the imperfections of the old order with a few highlights of the perfections of the Christ's order. You'll appreciate with me perhaps now the opportunity to look at the greatness of Christ's priesthood. For we have not plumbed all of the depths yet of chapter 7 and 8. Now suffice it to say, some of that greatness will have to wait for another lesson because the author now begins to tie on the notion of the covenant. And there's so much to say we'd better wait for another time to look at all of the covenant. But what is simply is said about the priesthood and all of the greatness to be seen in it? We've hinted so far, but now it's time to look at verse 22 in particular of chapter 7. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. A surety of a better testament. To those Jews who were thus contemplating a return to the old law and to serve in it in what they thought was an acceptable way, now the portrait is painted so clearly that this Jesus of whom you've heard and you've attempted to serve, he was made a surety of a better covenant, a better testament, if you will. And in the language of that word, how is it that those imperfections are now done away with all the perfections of what Christ brings? Let's use the rest of our time tonight to highlight some of them and cast the spotlight on that word surety, what it means and all the things promised by virtue of God's usage of that word. We might well begin, as you can see on that slide. Christ is certainly then the great high priest and might we quote part of verse 2 of chapter 8? If we start reading in verse 1, it reads as follows. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Don't you enjoy the Holy Spirit's usage of the word sum? And it's not S-O-M-E, it's S-U-M. This is a summary statement of what has gone before. If we wish to put in a nutshell the first seven chapters of Hebrews, the author's about to do it. Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. He truly has uttered a mouthful. We might well appreciate just a few of the things contained in that statement. First of all, a minister of the sanctuary. We now have a discussion of taking us back to the tabernacle. But you'll notice, the tabernacle of which the writer here speaks is called the true tabernacle. He isn't talking about that tabernacle built in Exodus 25. It's something far more profound and far deeper than that. We'll have to wait for another lesson in chapter 9 to expound the richness of it. He's whetting our appetite for what's to come. What is this true tabernacle? Are you and I blessed to be a part in it? Are there officiations that take place at it? Thankfully, the answer is yes. We will look at that in marvelous detail shortly. But for now, you'll notice the Lord pitched this tabernacle. Human hands never touched it. It was in fact prescribed by the pattern and goodness of God and in as much as it was brought into reality, it was not in fact done so by human construction, 
by human fancy or ingenuity, by human creativity even, the Lord pitched it. We ought to be so appreciative of the perfection found in what God pitches versus the imperfections in the best that man can do. And yet, notice, there is yet more to be said. For verse number 3 says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. That's Hebrews 8, verse number 3. Isn't it amazing then to see that this high priest in the Old Testament era, he of course needed to offer things. As we've noted earlier, the individuals would bring things to him and he would offer it. If Christ is our high priest, does he also have things to offer? If so, what are they? Are they still being offered or were they offered once and only once at some time in the past? Might we look back again to the end of chapter 7 and note the answer. Hebrews 7 verse 25. Wherefore he, and he again refers to Christ, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ has offered at some point in the past, but notice he does more than what those priests could do. They could offer they could not save. Christ offers, but the text says he, he can save. How thankful again we ought to be. In great gratitude, if you and I come to God through him, it says he is able to save them who come to God through him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. We have a perfect high priest. Again, far different than the imperfections of the Levitical order. Christ can save and they couldn't. What's more, whereas that priest could attempt to offer intercessions, often, again, he was encumbered with his own sin. Christ has none. And he intercedes on your behalf and mine. He is able to offer intercession. Notice the verb tense is present tense. He liveth to make intercession. He didn't die like those Old Testament priests did. He ever liveth to make intercession. Thankfully. That intercession that Christ is able to accomplish by virtue of his advocacy with the Father. John describes him as an, our advocate with God. 1 John 2 verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. There is one to carry my terribleness and sinfulness to the Father and plead God's forgiveness of me by virtue of his blood. Not what I could claim by virtue of my righteousness. For as we've often noted, I have none apart from him, and neither do you. But because of Christ's sacrifice, he can plead to his Father on my behalf to account his righteousness to me. And that's what he does. Thankfully, God is willing and very ably one who listens to his Son. Because his Son in his perfectness accomplished completely the Father's will. John 8 verse 29. Might we thus appreciate and note the blessedness of chapter 7 of Hebrews? In fact, looking at the way chapter 7 ties to chapter 8, perhaps near the bottom of that slide, the effectiveness of Christ's blood is, of course, what is lifted here and shall be specifically mentioned shortly. Paul made note of the greatness of that blood, didn't he? When Jesus shed his blood at Calvary, at Golgotha, when those Roman soldiers penetrated, of course, his back with that scourging. And on the cross, 
as the blood came forth from those nail scars. Jesus shed perfect blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 As that blood was shed, and it poured forth with sanctifying characteristics, and characteristics that are of great power for all of us. That blood, of course, is touched on by Paul in Philippians 3.9, when he made note of how effective that blood was. We may so say it in language like this, there is no sin that that blood cannot cleanse. There may be sin that someone refuses to bring to Christ. There may be sin that someone is unwilling to carry to him because they aren't willing to follow the gospel. But if a penitent heart comes to him, there is no sin that that blood cannot cleanse. In 1 John 1 verse 7, again there's a little word, it's an adjective, and might we emphasize it. For if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. All sin. And thus, whatever the darkness in my life may have been, or yours, whatever the sins may have been in your life or mine, if we will come to the Savior, He can cleanse it. He's promised He will. If we will pursue the truth of His Word and come to Him on His terms, He will not accept us on our terms. We must humbly prostrate ourselves before Him and come on His terms. And if we do, He will cleanse those sins. They'll be gone and we'll be white as snow. Isaiah 118. We'll be cleansed and those sins will be blotted out completely from his memory and that of his Father, and we can thus no longer stand beneath the guilt of them. That's the power of forgiveness. It's not just forgetting, it's forgiveness. And in those thoughts, perhaps we come to the closing issues for our lesson tonight. These we shall find highlighted as the close of chapter number 7 with again a simple thought that might be found in chapter number 8. We noted earlier the necessity of a priest to offer. And Christ did offer, for that's what a priest did. But so differently he offered one time. Think about what it would have been like for just a moment beneath the old law. There comes a particular time you realize that an error has been committed and you're guilty before God and so you bring the appropriate sacrifice. And two weeks later, something else has arisen and again you need to find a sacrifice. And so you go back to the priest. And perhaps as you realize the Day of Atonement approaching in that seventh month of the year, as you recollect and remember what it was that you had done, you again have to make note of what the blood is about to be sprinkled for. See, you were never completely and totally cleansed in conscience. You're still remembering the same sin. And another sacrifice has to be made. Not so beneath Christ. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Hebrews 10, 12. In Hebrews 9, 28, or verses 27 and 28 of chapter 9, point us to the fact that once from the foundation of the ages was Christ offered to bear the sins of many and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation there was one sacrifice offered oh how lovingly that was offered for in love he went to the cross not of his love for pain and anguish but his love for your soul and mine he went to that cross because he loved you and me enough he wanted us to be with him in heaven and he bore the excruciating agony 
of the scourging and the crown of thorns and the slapping in the face and the insults and the reviling and, of course, ultimately the nails into his hands and feet. And even while he hung there on the cross, bleeding so profusely, virtually perhaps nothing more than a bloodied human pulp at that point, and nonetheless he could look even on those there before him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke twenty three forty three. You see, Jesus even loved them, believe it or not. Those very ones who had just done to him what they did, he still knew that even they had souls. And they were in need of salvation. And you and I, today, with our sin-sick souls, are always ever in need of the blessed salvation offered through the Son. That's what the Hebrew writer lifts high. He urges them, don't you even really think about going back to the Levitical order. Its imperfections pale in comparison to the perfection of Christ and His priesthood and what He offers and the salvation through Him. And thus, as he closes chapter 7 and verse 28, he says, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Did you note the distinction with me? The priest who had infirmity by a way and fashion were made priests, but God had the Son in mind. Not the S-U-N, the S-O-N. And as that Son now occupies the high priestly place, it says He was consecrated. The literal word means perfected, completed forevermore. You and I can rest assured then that this law is not something that we will have to approach with a worrisome thought like this. Think about how terrible it'd be to stand on the day of judgment and to realize he may change the law on me. And I may thus have lived beneath one law and he'll hold me accountable to a different one. One might, of course, consider that an element of unfairness. But it's highlighted here. He's consecrated forever. And by the fact that then that new law is in place, that leads us to the thought of the covenant, which will be the subject of the next lesson. For chapter 8 will lead us into a thought about the covenant and its richness and what it involves. And as we approach that subject, we look forward to asking, how does it relate to the priesthood? The two are tied inextricably together. Tonight, as you think about your life, and as we each analyze and examine our own, Perhaps that word surety is a fitting way to conclude the lesson. We read a moment ago from Hebrews 7, 22 through 24, that Jesus is a surety of a better covenant. We thus have seen a better priesthood. We should expect a better covenant, a better testament. We, of course, have it in possession as the gospel. As you give some thought to what that surety means, it's a powerful word. It means guarantor. It means, as you can see on that slide, under good security or pledge. Amazingly, God has given you and me a guarantee. We often look for guarantees in places of business. We want them to guarantee their product so that if we purchase it and something goes wrong with it, we can take it back six months later and get a replacement. We want a guarantee. God has given to you and me a guarantee. The guarantees in the form of his son. Jesus was a historical person. He lived and walked here. And yet in that person as guarantor, he was God's security. His guarantee to you and I of the promises that Hebrews has unfolded. 
the greatness of the gospel, the priesthood, the church, and all the promises that go with it. You and I should be thankful for that guarantor. Tonight, have you turned your life over in respect to the guarantor? Have you honored him by obeying his will? If you've never become a Christian, why not tonight? Sometimes we sing a song, Oh, do not let the word depart. Why not tonight? There could be no better time than this particular night, the 11th of April, 2010. That could be a an eternally transforming day for you. Your name could be etched in the book of life tonight. You'll have membership in the church tonight. You'll be an individual with whom God is well pleased tonight. God asks through His Son that this is what you must do. Not again what you should think about doing, but what you must do. You need to hear the gospel. The fact that God has loved you and He sent His Son for you. You need to believe with all your heart Jesus is the Son of God. John 8, 24. You need to repent of the sins in your life that have in fact separated you from God that repentance demanded in Acts 2, 38. You need to confess that Jesus is in fact the Son of God in a fashion that others are aware of that verbal commitment. 1 John 4, verse 15. And then you need to be baptized. Not as an outward show of a previous salvation. Not as an outward show of what has taken place internally but for the forgiveness of sin, with the for indicative of in order that, looking forward and not backward. And thus, with baptism approached in that fashion, you will be immersed, buried in water for the forgiveness of sins. Upon so doing, you will rise, with the old man having been buried because it was dead. You will rise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verse 4. And in that newness of life, you're a new creature, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Tonight, if we could assist one or more in that obedience, it would truly again be a tremendous event in your eternal life. If though you've become a Christian, but no longer really are a true one, maybe you have forgotten sight of some of these matters in the Hebrew letter, that true tabernacle, the reality of the one and only high priest today. You've tried to approach God in some other way, maybe through your own self. Realize that that will get you nowhere. Tonight, if we could pray for your forgiveness in light of those matters in your life, let us do that. We'd be happy and honored, just as was the case with Peter in regard to Simon in Acts the 8th chapter, verse 20. If we could help you tonight in either of those ways, would you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?